0: Many of you have, Janelle and I have had the incredible privilege of having you to our house for this course we do called Essentials, five weeks um, where we make you eat dinner with us and then listen to me babble for an hour or so. Now, I love Essentials. The first week, I get to tell the story of the Bible. In one sitting. We start on the very first page, and we end on the very last page. And I always love beginning the first session of Essentials by asking the group to imagine two books, two books in my hand. One, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. The other, an encyclopedia. And I always begin by asking the group, what is the difference? How do you use these two books... And how is your use of them different? How is a novel used differently than an encyclopedia? An encyclopedia, you look up whatever tidbit of information you want. You can jump around. You can read any article because the order of the information, the order of the articles has nothing to do with the meaning of the articles. Each article is a self-contained moment in the encyclopedia. It doesn't rely on other articles. Now, our novel is different. You see, a novel um, doesn't work that way. In fact, if you treat a novel the way you treat an encyclopedia... If you turn to the last page of the Hunchback of Notre Dame and you see Quasimodo up on top of the Cathedral of Notre Dame and he's got his adopted father hoisted over his head and he launches him over the side of the cathedral and he kind of bounces off the various jutting out bits of the cathedral and bones break in a very gruesome Victor Hugo-ish way as he plummets his way and bounces his way down to the streets of Paris below, eventually dying. And at the same moment in the distance is the beautiful Esmeralda who's being hanged at the gallows. Now if you treat the last scene of the Hunchback of Notre Dame the way you treat the article Zebra in the encyclopedia, you're not going to know the meaning of that last scene because the meaning of a scene in a novel is determined by its location in a novel. Because novels, other than some kind of the new avant-garde stuff, novels, historically speaking, are built around a plot that has scenes that are determined by the relationship to one another. So a man kisses a woman in a wood. You're reading a newspaper about a court case, very different than if you're reading a fairy tale. And the man is a prince, and the woman is? No, why? See, if you don't know who he is and who she is and what the story up till then has been about, then you could prosecute this man for violating her sleep. You could be frustrated that he has woken her up from her nap. Or you could rejoice that she has, he has set her free. A novel is a story, and so it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And meaning is determined by plot, and plot is movement over time. The Bible is not an encyclopedia, it is a novel. And what I mean is it tells a story. It tells one story, the one true story. Now granted, this story is long and complicated, and it covers a, a disparate grouping of events that occur over many, many centuries of time, but still we are dealing with with a novel, with one single story. And it is this large, single, capacious, overarching narrative that the Bible tells. And here's the insight I want you to hold on to for this morning. If the Bible is a novel, it is coherent. And that belief is the difference between a Christian reading of Scripture and a non-Christian reading. You see, a Christian reading of Scripture says there are many little A authors, but there is one big A author. And he is telling a coherent story. And he is the Lord of history. And this one book coheres because of him. And so when you read the beginning, and you read the end, you interpret them in light of one another because of a belief That this was written by God. Now that is a Christian belief. You can read the Bible in other ways. You can approach it as a historical piece of um, a historical kind of accretion. You can insist that it is incoherent, that that it's contradictory that it does not the bits and pieces don't have anything to do with one another. And when you begin to do that, when you begin to atomize the Bible and take it apart into little bitty disparate pieces, you can no longer read it Christianly. Wordsworth had this great saying, we murder to dissect. When you dissect the Bible and you relieve it of its single overarching author, you murder it and you turn it into something it is not. Now, What we're going to do this Sunday, starting this Sunday and for four more Sundays after this one, we're going to explore the first seven chapters of the Bible. And we're going to see how these seven chapters tell basically five scenes of the story. And how these five scenes that make up the beginning of the single biblical story, how they cohere, they're connected to... The whole rest of the story. So this morning we're going to look at the first scene. Genesis chapter 1 verses 1 through chapter 2 verse 3. The original creation of the world. We're going to see how God's work in creation in the very beginning reveals, foreshadows, prefigures God's work of new creation in the life and the ministry, and the death, and the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. Next week, we're going to look at the second scene, Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through the end of the chapter, 4 through 25. And we're going to see how Adam, the first human, foreshadows Jesus, the true human. And then the the third week, we're going to look at the third scene. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 3, and we'll see how the fall, the sin, of the first humans, brings out judgment and mercy. And we're going to see how this prefigures the judgment and mercy that God pours out through the life of Jesus. And then on the fourth week, we'll look at Genesis 4 and 5, and we'll see how the the conflict between two groups of humans produces a longing for a return to Eden. And this is a prefiguration of our longing for the new Eden. And in the last week, the fifth week, we'll look at Genesis 6 through 7. The fifth scene, where the flood prefigures, foreshadows, is the first example of the judgment of Jesus over the world when he returns. Let's dive in. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, the very first line of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This means God made everything. And in verse 2, we see the earth was characterized by three things, without form, void, And darkness was over the face of the deep. So the first step of creation, verse 1, God creates all of the raw materials of the cosmos. And they are in a state of formlessness, darkness, and chaos. Notice what happens next. God, in verse 3, begins a processive, subduing of the chaos, the darkness, and the, and the void, the deep. Verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now hold this place in your Bible, turn to the right about halfway, and find Isaiah chapter 45. If you need to use your table of contents, that's fine. By the way, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to bring it these next few weeks. Um, It'll be good to have it with you. Always good. Isaiah chapter 45. Listen to verse 18. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God. Who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. Now here, the prophet Isaiah gives us a critical summary of the original creation. Here we see what God was doing in creation. He was transforming the chaos of the cosmos into what? A suitable Habitation. If we were to take the time to unpack Genesis 1 and 2 in the ancient Near Eastern context that it was written in, we would see that God is not just creating the universe, He's creating it in a particular way. He is creating, He is building a temple, a house, a place where the deity dwells. Now, this understanding of the creation account that Genesis 1 and 2 read in its original context according to all the the clues and allusions that existed in the ancient Near East at this time, this idea that God is building a house comes up over and over again in Scripture. Just a couple of examples. Find Job chapter 38. That's to the left of Isaiah, right before Psalms, Job 38. Verse 4, God is questioning Job. Uh, Just while you're turning there, uh, one of my favorite scholars um, is a secular Jew um, in England. I heard him once say, he's not not a believer. I don't even think he's a theist. I once heard him say, He's the Extraordinary Professor of Literature at Oxford. How do you get the title Extraordinary Professor? (laughs) That alone makes you listen, right? He once said, I can imagine Shakespeare walking home having written the great speeches of Othello, but I can never imagine a human being having written the divine speeches of Job. Job 38 and 39 is astonishing. And here is God giving Job a lesson. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurement? Surely you know. (laughs) sarcasm. I think that's where my mother learned it. (laughs) Forgive me, mother. And who stretched the line upon it? Or what were were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Here we find God summarizing creation in terms of of architecture, laying a line, setting a cornerstone, building a house. I don't have time to go into it, but a lot of those words um, are ripped right out of the building industry of that time. One more, very important one for something I'm going to say later on to get it on the table, Proverbs, a few books to the right, Job, and Psalm, then the next book is Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 3. Look at Proverbs chapter 3, verse 19. Totally wrong. Hold on a minute. This is really important, and i got to figure out where it is. Yes, what am I looking? Oh, thank you. I'm looking at chapter 4, verse 19, which doesn't work. All about the way of the wicked. All right. (laughs) Listen to verse 19. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. We don't have time to go into it. Genesis chapter 1, it's actually a three-story house. There's the firmament. There's the earth. And there's the waters under the earth. Here, all three stories are described as being built. But notice what characterizes God the builder. Not Bob the builder. God the builder. He built the cosmos with three things. Wisdom. What's the second one? Understanding and knowledge. Keep that in your mind. Now, like I said earlier, if we were to take our time and read Genesis 1 to 2, in its ancient Near Eastern context, we would see there is a pattern going on. God's victory over the chaos. This is almost a verbatim repetition of the Gilgamesh epic and a lot of the other ancient stories of the creation of the world, but there is a profound theological difference. It's not God fighting chaos. He speaks and it's slayed. And chaos is different from God. Yes, this story was borrowed in its, in its kind of structure from other tellings of the creation of the world, but the way it's told is the critical difference. God's victory over the chaos, followed by temple building. That's the pattern of creation in Genesis 1. Through the beginning of Genesis 2, God's victory over the chaos followed by the building of a temple. Now, remember the point of this sermon is to explore the coherence of scripture. So now what we're going to do is to take the creation and see how this pattern of victory followed by temple building repeats itself at critical moments throughout the rest of history. So let's look at three moments. First, the flood. Many of you have heard of the flood, Noah, all of that stuff. Now, as you're thinking about the flood, remember this. After Adam and Eve's sin, Genesis 3, their particular individual sin turns into a plague. And this plague spreads like cancer until, if we could read it closely, all three stories of the house are polluted, the spoiling of God's temple. And how does God respond to the pervasive, catastrophic, comprehensive spoiling of His house? God responds by unleashing the waters of chaos. In other words, in the flood, God reverses His action at creation. He allows the waters that He contained, the waters that He bound up, to become uncontained, to become unbound, and to uncreate his creation. And then what? After God has flooded his house, what does he do? Genesis chapter 8. He, he does to the waters in the flood exactly what he did to the waters originally. He rules over them. He restrains them. He reestablishes the order of creation. He's cleaned house. Some of you clean your deck this way. And then in Genesis 9, what does he do? He sends Noah and his children out into a new creation. And Noah is clearly portrayed as a new Adam. God tells Noah to do all the things he told Adam to do. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and have dominion over it. All that stuff that Glenn read to us that God told Adam and Eve to do. When Noah comes off the ark into a new creation, God says, you're the second Adam. We're starting over. We're doing this again with you. Be fruitful. Fill the earth. So do you see God in the flood recreates? He does a new creation. Now, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 29. Psalm 29. The Bible over and over again picks up the story of creation and it interprets the events of history through the pattern and the lens of the story of creation. Psalm 29 is one example where the flood is told in the language of the original creation. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory to His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. When? At the flood, at the original creation. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. It's this powerful voice that can restrain the waters. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. You know, in the beginning, God said, let there be light, let there be sun. Let the... His voice did all of this. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, there it is. There's the pattern, right? God having victory over chaos. And then what? A temple. And in its temple, all cry, glory the lord sits enthroned over the flood the lord sits enthroned as king forever may the lord give strength to his people and the lord give his people with peace so the wicked generation of noah was destroyed by the waters of chaos and god ruling over and restraining the mighty waters reestablishes the cosmos which is his renewed temple It's the pattern God used in the first creation and in the flood we see the pattern repeated. Victory followed by temple. Now another important repetition of this pattern occurs in the next most important historical event. The Exodus. And when Moses writes the account of the Exodus, he tells it using the pattern and the language of creation Now, this is all over the place. The parallels between Genesis 1 and 2 and the the account of Israel's exodus, the parallels saturate the book of Exodus. Just a few of them. Look in your Bibles at Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 13. Look at verse 21. And the Lord went before them. This is Israel coming out of Egypt. And he went before them by a pillar of, fire, of cloud to lead them along the way by night. And a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from the people. Look, as God is leading Israel out of Egypt, he, he shines a light into the darkness. His, his light leads the way of the Exodus, that's day one of creation, when God's light led the way of creation. Look at verse chapter 14, verse 21. Just one chapter over. Notice another thing that occurs. Subsequent. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided. Here we see that after leading the way with light, God, what does he do? He parts the waters of the sea to make a way for his people. Just like on day two. Of creation, when God divided the waters to make a world for man to live on. And then look at chapter 14, verse 29. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right and a hand to them on their left. Here, dry land emerges. That's day three of creation. Genesis, then Exodus chapter 31 Look at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, They've come out of the Exodus. They're in, um, they're in their deliverance. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I've called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God. With ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship. Which is an unfortunate translation. our Bible translators have an enormously difficult job to do. And often, like in this case in my Bible, which is a fabulous translation, it's better than yours, it's the ESV, it's the English Standard Translation. They obscure verbal parallels that connect two or more passages. And in this case, the original Hebrew... It is the exact same three words in the exact same order as Proverbs 3 19 through 20. God fills the Spirit, fills Bezalel with his Spirit so that he has wisdom, understanding, and knowledge to do what? To build a tabernacle. Now, what's going on here? God and Proverbs 3.19 is described as doing creation, building creation as a temple with wisdom, with understanding and knowledge. Those words in that order. And then in Exodus, after God patterns day one, day two, day three, you could just go right down through it. He gets them there and he now says, now build a tabernacle with wisdom, with knowledge, and with, understand, with understanding and with knowledge. You see, God has made his house of creation through his spirit, with these things and now God tells Israel to make a house for his presence to be localized with these characteristics so the Israelite tabernacle is a microcosm of the macrocosm the tabernacle is a is patterned after God's creation of the whole cosmos as a temple It is the localized holy counterpart to the cosmos at large Now, one last thing. Go back to Exodus chapter 15. We won't take time to read it, but this is the song of Moses where Moses summarizes the Exodus in a song, a song of celebration. And if we were to take time to read it, we would see that he basically repeats the pattern. God's victory over chaos, the chaos of Egypt, and then... God's building of a temple. So the exodus of Israel, like the flood, is God's birth of a new world. Do you get it? Do you see what's going on here? Israel is God's new beginning. Israel is God's new world that is a gift to the whole world that will lead to the cleansing of the whole world. Now, this coherent theme carries on through Scripture. It's repeated a lot of times. But just one more example, the life of Jesus himself. You see, the Bible often speaks of the work of God in creation as prefiguring the work of God in redemption. That's why you've got all that new creation language when you're talking about Jesus. Remember Genesis 1-2? The earth was what? Without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And then what? The Spirit of God is hovering over that darkness, hovering over the deep. And the, it's, 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 it's like the Spirit of God is over the womb of creation that then gives birth to land and sea and earth and humans and all of these things. Climaxing, ultimately, in the Spirit of God, drawing out of the womb of creation human beings, the first Adam. If we had taken the time, we could have traced this out. We could have seen the Spirit of God as a dove in the flood, leading Noah and his children out of the ark. We could have seen the Spirit of God not only with the second Adam, the second Noah, but we can turn to Luke chapter 1, verse 35, where the Spirit of God hovers over the Virgin Mary and draws out of her womb the last Adam, the true Adam, and then we could see that same spirit of God descending again like he did at the flood descending as a dove on Jesus at his baptism in Matthew 3:16. We could see this tremendous coherence and we could see that Jesus the last Adam is making the new world the last and final time. The parallels go on and on. Genesis 1:28 through 30, God commanded the earth to be fruitful, commanded Um, Adam and Eve to be fruitful, and to multiply, and to rule over the beast. And then in Genesis 3, what happens? The exact opposite. Adam and Eve become servants of a beast, a serpent. And no longer do they fill the earth with the children of God, the sons of righteousness. Now they fill the earth with the children of death. Very next scene, Cain kills Abel, And once you see that there is a coherence, that this is a single story, it's filled with prefigurings and foreshadowings, then the whole life and ministry of Jesus opens up. You see that Jesus is the last Adam, and he does not yield to the beast, the serpent. He slays the serpent, and he fulfills Adam's calling by filling this world with the sons of God. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And that is what Jesus has done. Have dominion over the beast. And that is what Jesus did when he crushed the head of the serpent. In Genesis, once the dry land emerges from the water, on the third day, the divine sower goes over the entire earth. And what Glenn read to us, bringing forth verdant pastures and forests. And now you can understand the enormous claim of Matthew chapter 13, which is just mind-boggling. People who say that only John's gospel identifies Jesus as God haven't read the whole Bible. Listen to Matthew. You can only say that if you've atomized the Bible, if it's no longer coherent. Look at Matthew chapter 13, verse 37. Jesus is teaching, and he, an- and he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the children of God. The creator is the redeemer who has arrived in the redemption of Jesus is the work of new creation. And it is on the third day that the first fruit of creation breaks forth when Jesus is raised from the dead. That's why the third day matters. Because it creation matters. Now remember the world is God's house and now you can begin to understand all of those parables of Jesus that refer to houses. The parables where he says the house owner has left and he's come back. All of these parables of Jesus that refer to to property and houses and buildings with servants and masters and you see that the conflict throughout the gospels between Jesus and Satan is about who is the master of the house. Runs this place, who's in charge of the house. Jesus' exorcism, it's very interesting. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's called the Synoptic Gospels. In the Synoptic Gospels, the, the people have unclean spirits, which is different than in John's Gospel, where they have evil spirits. You know why? Because it's the same word they were reading in their Greek translation of Leviticus about unclean things that God alone can cleanse from God's house. What is God doing when he casts out demons? He's sweeping the house clean. I wish we had time to walk through the last week of Jesus' life, his his events leading up to his crucifixion and his resurrection on day one. In Matthew's gospel, you have the light of the world approaching the temple of Israel from the east. It is a recapitulation of the day one of creation. During the week, you find in John's gospel the word of God speaking daily in the temple, entering into combat with the religious and political leaders who represent, according to John, the darkness and chaos and anti creative force of the original moment of creation. Day six. Of the last week of Jesus' life, you find in John's gospel, the word, Jesus surveying his redemptive work. And what does Jesus say from the cross at the very end? Anybody know? When else was it is finished spoken at the very end? When God looked at all that he had made and said, behold, it is finished. John 19.30, Genesis 2.30. Here we find God himself declaring his created work done and entering the Sabbath rest. On what day does God rest? The same day in Genesis Saturday as Jesus rested after his crucifixion. It says very clearly that after God made everything, he declared his work done and he rested. Jesus on the cross declares his work done and he goes to the rest of death. Do you have ears to hear? The work of Jesus in his crucifixion and his reenact is his reenactment of creation. Why? Because in his life, death and resurrection, Jesus creates the final creation. I wish we had time to see how the return of Jesus is the repeating of the flood and the exodus. We'll cover that in weeks ahead. But just remember one thing. In Genesis 1-2, God makes everything and then it has three characteristics. What are those three characteristics? Formless, void, and darkness. Darkness. Now when you read Revelation 21 and 22, the end of the story, you see that in the beginning God restrained the darkness and the deep and He set bounds on the night and established the limits of the sea, original creation. But in the new creation, when that which is perfect has come, there will no longer be night and the sea will be removed. When the perfect has come, it will not be restrained. It will be destroyed and removed. I'll close with this. The work of creation in the first place, in the flood and in the exodus and in the life of Jesus, it was all God's work. All of God. None of us. And the work of new creation in your life, is all of God and none of you. Creation and new creation, that is the mighty power of God. And think about this. Think about how sure of a comfort that is for a troubled heart. God in ancient times who could say to the waters of chaos, be restrained and in the latter times, could could say to the storm of Galilee, Be still. He is able in your day to calm the chaos and the trouble of your life over and over again in the bible it is the power of god displayed in creation and new creation that gives the people of god hope and comfort in the midst of their troubles in the midst what is the what is the pattern god calming the chaos and then entering his temple in the old testament the prophets over and over appeal to the god of power displayed in creation as the foundation of a very real confidence in, the, in God's power in the midst of their own chaos. Isaiah chapter 48. Verse 12. There's just such a moment in the life of Israel. They are in the chaos... That is a result of their sin. They are in the chaos of their own guilt and judgment. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel whom I called. I am he. I am the first and I am the last. I'm the Lord of history. Look, I am not saying that we can look at the Exodus and think about it like the creation I am saying God controls history and he performed the exodus like he performed creation and he performed the flood like he performed creation and he performed the life of Jesus like he performed creation and he will perform it all again when he makes all things new through the return of his son. I'm saying history has a purpose. It has a progress. It has a destination. It is his story. He is over history. This is the people of God looking at history and seeing seeing the consistent hand of God. I am the first and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth and my hand spread out the heavens. When I call them together, they stand forth. Assemble all you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I love this. It was the hand of God that made creation, but it is the arm of God that saves us. We can have an assurance. You think God thundered in creation. His thunder dwarfs creation. When it comes to salvation, the hand that spread out the heavens becomes the arm that saves us. I love the end of Genesis 1:16. Don't have to turn there. Three words and the stars. Like that, don't you, Russ? Russ loves stars. Those little dots in the sky. When, when the Bible describes the stars being created, that, that people, our best minds today, are boggled by, right? We're just now discovering, you know, Hubble Space Telescope, how far this thing goes and how many stars there are and how many billions of galaxies there are, right? You know, all of that is summed up in two words in Hebrew, three words in English, just two words in the original language chronicling the creation of a numberless galaxies. What majesty! like that, on a whim, in two short blasts of his breath and words, can sling cosmos, can sling the galaxies. What majesty, God's effortless power, which could bring the solar system into existence with a word and multiply galaxies beyond number, who in the history of the world is capable of comprehending the power of God. Do not despair. Your chaos, even the chaos of your own making, even the judgment you deserve, trembles before this God. The God who tamed the chaos of Genesis 1 verse 2 is the God who raised Jesus from the dead and opened the door to new creation and He can raise you from your personal chaos and He can fill you with His Spirit and make you His temple. And we hope for the day when the dragon And his host will be dumped into the lake of fire forever. And until then, we are called to act in hopeful anticipation of that final victory. In the end, all the gigantic enemies of Jesus, every last chaos, death itself will finally be put in its place. Let's pray.